Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. We record the show on Indigenous land on the island that's called Australia that was stolen, never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We have a Patreon account, Red Flag Radio podcast, if you want to help us out with that. In fact, our guest today is one of our patrons. Um, that's how much she loves the show and uh, that's why we consider her a friend of the show not that you have to pay us to be our friend but every little helps Uh, so we're very pleased to welcome back Moira Leahy who's a veteran socialist that doesn't mean she's old it means she's experienced who was a leading member of the Socialist Workers Party in the UK in the 1990s which is significant to the topic that we're going to be discussing today Um, and is also an active socialist in Sydney um, right now. So we wanted to talk about the history of the Anti-Nazi League um, in Britain, not just because it's a fantastic kind of story, um, but partly because obviously in today's um, political climate, and in fact just today uh, we're recording this on the 14th of June, um, we've heard news from Britain of uh, far-right protests um, taking place in response to the massive international uprising against racism and police brutality that is centred around the United States, but it's obviously been taken up in Britain um, and in Australia and a whole lot of other countries around the world, that there is going to be, and especially with Trump in the presidency, um, a response from the far-right. And obviously pre pandemic and this uprising the far right have been getting organized and they've been doing that in different places around the world and it's been part kind of of um the dynamic of this political period that is not just going to go away so these are historical discussions but i think they play a pretty important um bearing or there are some lessons definitely that we can take uh from the anti-nazi league so let's get into kind of the context for it, because the period we're talking about mostly is the 1970s, the late 70s um, in the UK. But I think we have to go back to the 50s and 60s uh, to start with the kind of context of racism in Britain. Um, obviously, today, Britain is still an extremely racist place. But when you look at the 50s and 60s, I mean, it would be shocking to most people, I think, Um so, Moira, do we want to start with kind of some of that context, what it was like at the time, what people's experiences were like, what was kind of driving that at the time? Yeah, I think uh, one of the myths about fascist movements is that they kind of spring up from nowhere. But I think the growth of the fascists in Britain in the 1960s and 70s and the org- main organisation was called the National Front, like all fascist movements, came uh, against the backdrop of the growth of racist politics in the mainstream of society. And in this case, in the 1950s and 60s, really this was the moment of decline of the British Empire, when right across the British Empire, hundreds of thousands of people fought for their liberty and kicked the British out of their countries in national liberation movements. And in this moment, there were attempts by sections 
of the ruling class in Britain to stoke racism at the birth, really, of what is, you know, for all Britain is a racist country, it is a modern multiracial society as well. And there was a whole, you know, section of society that had been, that really were, were keeping up the kind of racist tropes of empire. They were dehumanising people who wasn't white. This underpinned and legitimised the colonial so-called civilising project of white Britain that had been taking place for hundreds of years. And in 1955, you know, Churchill, who had been prime minister, he was prime minister again in 1955, the great war hero whose statue is quite rightly covered up in Whitehall today because of the danger of it being pulled down, uh, suggested to the Conservative cabinet that they should consider going to the general election with the slogan of keep Britain white. And the decline of empire combined with increased immigration, particularly from the Commonwealth, countries, you know, was contributing to, on the right in society, a particular form of anti-immigrant racism. This was especially true in the 1960s, when there was an increase in a large number of immigrants from Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, had increased. So in the first two months of 1968, nearly 13,000 people entered the UK from these countries, compared to 6,000 for the whole of 1965. And what you were getting in the Tory party was increasing uses of racism to kind of to stoke up their chances of winning an election. Very similar to what are the, a lot of the right-wing politics that we see today. And a key figure in that was Enoch Powell, who was a right-wing conservative uh, MP. And he delivered this very famous speech in 1968, which is an absolute disgraceful speech, which talked about rivers of blood running through the streets of Britain if they allowed immigration to carry on. And in that atmosphere, to be black in Britain, to be Irish in Britain, to be Asian in Britain was not a, was not a good experience. You know, when my dad immigrated to Britain in the early 1950s, it was really common that the pubs had signs up saying no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. So this was the atmosphere in which the National Front began to grow. Mm. And that's um, combined with, uh, you know, a very highly racist media landscape at the time, which obviously hasn't changed that much in some cases. Um, and then what happens in the early 70s on top of all of that, so you've got this kind of fall of empire, you know, the white British establishment trying to hold on to empire and to whip up racism around it and... And then you've got the reality of kind of immigration from those um, ex-former colonies and so on. And all of that, into all of that, uh, you have the economic crisis of the early 1970s, which is always the thing really, and will be today, and it has been since 2008, the thing that um, is used to emphasise racism um, as a tool of kind of as a way of making an excuse for the failure of capitalism to deliver for people on that economic level. Things like housing provision, for example, was a big um, point uh, that racists in Britain wanted to make in the 70s about the fact that white people couldn't get uh, council housing, but um, immigrants could. I mean, all of this is incredibly familiar. Um, unemployment levels and so on um, being blamed on immigration, um, 
And actually what was really happening was that that, that kind of economic um, pressure was being actually felt much more by black and immigrant communities. So you had massively high unemployment rates, um, hugely high numbers of black young people in particular unemployed. I think in 1977 there were 60% black youth unemployment in Britain. So you also had this tension kind of playing out on on the streets um, as well with sort of racist attacks on people of colour and, um, you know, people wanting to defend themselves, all of that kind of stuff happening. So into that arena of the racism created by the British state um, emphasised and um, through this economic crisis, you had people thinking now is the time to form an explicitly kind of racist and fascist organisation. So um, who were the types of people then in that early, in the formation of the National Front? I mean, it's really like a cavalcade of scumbags. Yeah. Talk about some of that. (laughs) I mean, the names of the organisations that the people belong to who kind of came together to form the National Front tell you everything about them. So people from the League of Empire Loyalists, people from the Greater Britain movement, people from the Racial Preservation Society. These are people who coalesced, you know, a year or two before the Powell speech, but it was the Powell speech that kind of gave them the impetus that to bring them together. And, you know, and people often talk about Enoch Powell as though he was just on the fringes of the Tory party. But when he delivered speech in 1968 there was a hundred Tory MPs in the room to to listen to it and you know as with the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s and the fascists in Italy in the 20s etc the core of these people were the middle class you know we often hear this stuff don't we that working class people are stupid and racist middle class people are enlightened actually fascist movements you know have always grown among sections of the, of the middle class, the kind of little Englander types that you might have also seen, you know, in some of the Brexit uh, movements, etc. And they were kind of given a boost by, you know, the things you describe, the, the end of the longest boom of capitalism for many decades. And the thing about, you know, the racists is they seem to put forward these, as you say, these very simple solutions, don't they? So in the mid-1970s, you know, their simple message was there's one million unemployed in Britain and there's one million immigrants. Of course, as is always the case, I mean, Paul Foote wrote a brilliant pamphlet in the 1970s. He was a a long-term socialist in in Britain until he died in the 1990s and a campaigning journalist who won many awards for his writing. He wrote a pamphlet where he talked about, you know, that in opposition, the Labour Party had always been against immigration, but once in government... They were people who would bring in immigration bills. And they did that in 1976. So you've got this kind of heady mix of the kind of right racists in society trying to cling on to the the supposed greatness of the British Empire. What a disgrace that was, combined with the effects of unemployment and the recession that was kicking in in the middle 1970s. And then on top of that, you get the Labour government attacking the union movement that had put it into power in the first place. I mean, one of my earliest memories as a little kid in the early 1970s was sitting in our house in candlelight in 1973 or 74. It was, I was four or five at the time, because the power workers had gone on strike 
against the Conservative government. You know, the union movement in Britain, like in Australia, New Zealand, elsewhere in the early 70s, had incredible strength. The 1974 general election was fought on the basis of who runs the government. Is it the miners or is it the government? And people voted to kick the Tories out on the basis that they much preferred to be run by the miners fighting for better pay for working class children. Once the recession kicks in and you've got a Labour government seeing their role as managing capitalism, that logic that in a recession we need to cut back, we need to, you know, have job cuts, we need to have wage reduction, the kind of negotiations we're seeing some union leaders in Australia actively pursuing today meant an attack on the very people that had put them into power and the very people who had power to resist the racism and the and the you know the attempts to divide people inside of British society that the Nazis and the right of the Tories represented. And so you know they had the Labour government as one of the earliest adopters of you know of an accord style social contract of accepting cuts in jobs and wages. And so with you know previous Nazi movements, the ideological base of the Nazis were sections of the middle class that were hit by the recession. In their view, they were squeezed by the workers and the big bosses clearing out their businesses as capitalism does. Uh, and this connected with some of the bitterness amongst unemployed people in Britain as well. So that was the backdrop, really, that, you know, this organisation in 1967 that was pretty small became pretty significant by the mid-1970s. Our across the world. One of the ways, I guess they had a kind of combined strategy in the National Front. Um, one, to run in elections and two, to have street mobilisations of fascists. So the electoral work um, happened mostly at a local level in council elections and so on, but they kind of got to a point where they could run a whole lot more candidates and this really meant putting up posters with their propaganda, I mean, having a platform basically as candidates um, to make these racist speeches and organise people um, to propagandise, basically. So this happened over a period of years um, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s of going from running eight candidates in 1966 to running 90 candidates in 1974 and polling, you know, anywhere from sort of 5 to 10%. Um, and even at one point up to 16%, which started to worry people that this was kind of increasing in parts and was a bit of a wake-up call, I think, around people wanting to do something to fight back. And the other, I think, wake-up call or, um, uh, you know, the stuff that made the left want to do something about it was the fact that these people were kind of beginning to march um, unimpeded on the streets in working class communities and in cities in Britain. So they had the street mobilisation stuff, you know, like um, uh, wanting to model themselves on the Nazis and sort of the Nazi techniques of organising because you didn't just want votes in the ballot box, you wanted um, sort of jackboots on the street. And so uh, John Tyndall, who was one of the leaders of the National Front, um, agreed with Goebbels in that uh, he said, you know, uh, this is a quote from John Tyndall, 
I believe our great marches with drums and flags and banners have a hypnotic effect on the public and immense effect in solidifying the allegiance of our followers so that their enthusiasm can be sustained. And that was very important for them. And Goebbels also uh, noted (laughs) that this was like a kind of metamorphosis from a little worm into part of a big dragon, that these people needed that sense that they meant something in the world and that being on the street and waving their flags and being alongside other morons, fucking (laughs) Nazis, made them feel much more confident and that was part of the psychology of the leadership of these movements which is why then when you get to 1977 and the really major confrontation that happens in Lewisham that the strategy of the left in opposing them on the streets and not just thinking if you ignore them they'll go away or you know if you let them spout all their shit people bring it out into the open and let people decide people won't go along with it and so on which is the same arguments we have today, mm. um, was such an important kind of turning point. Yeah. I mean, you hear that a lot, don't you, that, you know, the process of democracy is the way to deal with these people. I mean, actually, of course, famously, Hitler wasn't uh, elected. He was appointed chancellor in 1933 in Germany. When you look at what's happening in Brazil, for example, Bolsonaro, who's not a fascist, but there's massive kind of far-right elements in his government, etc. The, that is also about undermining democracy. And I think that the wonderful thing about what happened in 1977 in Lewisham in South London is it, it was a battle, it was a turning point that said to people, you can actually drive these people off the streets and make an inroad into the base that they have been building. You know, by 1977, the NF probably had somewhere over 20,000 members. There were other people who would come out on the demonstration. 1977, you know, there's kind of a mythology about it. I was a teacher in Lewisham for a long time. And, you know, and you always met people who would, whose parents had been on it, whose grandparents were on the protests. I mean, if everyone I ever met said they were on the protest, there was 200,000 people there. In reality, there was 10,000. But I think that what happened in Lewisham, and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a sec, it was a turning point. If you look, you know, in America today, the response to the murder of George Floyd, what is now the biggest urban rebellion in US history, you know, Black Lives Matter has existed since 2015, since the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, and has been a very important movement and has, you know, and has mobilised thousands of people on the streets. In the same way, in Britain in the 1970s, there were mass mobilizations against the Nazis in 1974, 1976 in particular. But Lewisham transformed the anti-Nazi movement in the way that the mobilizations in the days after George Floyd's murder has absolutely transformed the issue of police violence and institutionalized racism in, in America over the last three weeks. And Lewisham was that turning point for two key reasons, really. Firstly, it was a mass mobilisation that stopped the Nazis marching through a very multiracial part of London. They were smashed off the streets that August day. They were utterly destroyed. And people should look at the photographs of the day if you've never done it. There's some beautiful photographs of the joy and delight of the unity of black and white people together fighting against to stop the Nazis taking over their streets. 
My favourite photo is of these two London teenagers holding sections of this ripped-up Nazi banner. It's their spoils of the day. And there's the delight in the face that where they live has not been claimed by Nazis that day. And that was a real argument in the anti-Nazi movement, as it is today, about is that the right tactic to do? And it was a mass mobilisation that brought the revolutionary left who really organised on that day into united action with important sections of the black and Asian communities in the area and, crucially, 5,000 local young people. So there were 5,000 anti-racists organised largely by the Socialist Workers' Party and groups like the Mangrove Community Organisation who were a black organisation based in West London that had been campaigning and fighting over the racist violence against black and Asian youths in the area, the Indian Workers' Association. And it was bringing those people together in this moment that stopped the Nazis marching through the streets of South London that became a turning point. Because it said you could stop them and you could stop them by mobilising ordinary people to do so. Mm. And I think one of the other things just to note about uh, what was happening in Lewisham, well, was well, two things about the cops, I reckon. One is that it was partly the racist policing that had been going on in those black communities for so long. You know, the knocking on doors, the dragging away of teenage a black teenage young man, um, constant harassment in the streets and so on that really was like, you know, getting people to think that they wanted to come out and do something about it and communities organising around that stuff. And then secondly, that the police wanted to facilitate the march of the Nazis on this day and that those when those Nazis got together in Lewisham, um, they were surrounded by cops to defend them um, like we see today when the far right protest and they get called different you know the things that happen get called different things when they're white fascists than when they're um, you know multiracial anti-racist protesters so like we've just heard in London there were scuffles uh, with the police you know with the far right whereas when it's multiracial it's a riot and all of that kind of crap so the police played exactly the same role then so it was also for people, I think, to show that um, that resistance, that mass resistance to the fascists also had to be a mass resistance to the cops and the role of the police as, you know, racist um, agitators, actually, in those communities. So the, the kind of euphoria was a euphoria against the Nazis, but also a euphoria that the cops had been run off the streets that day and had to retreat in the end Um just this beautiful, uh, all these beautiful stories about the day. Um, David Widgery, who was one of the people there who's written about um, the memories of that day. I just want to read one of his um, quotes from Lewisham. I can still recall the day clearly as the National Front swung around the corner preceded by 30 police horses, Union Jacks, all the panoply swagger, one lone guy in a very loud jacket and boots stepped out of the crowd, picked up a very large stone and threw it in the middle of them. In a way that encapsulated the whole day. In the end, the National Front were obstructed by about 10,000 demonstrators. It was a very exhilarating afternoon. The mood was euphoric. Not only because of the sense of achievement, they did not pass, not with dignity anyway, 
and the police completely lost control, but also because at last we were all in it together. Yeah, I, I, David Widgery's book, Beat in Time, about Rock Against Racism and the Anti-Nazi League is a really beautiful uh, read. He was one of the organisers on the day. He was a revolutionary socialist. And later he was, a, he was a GP in London for a long time. He wrote some beautiful stuff about the NHS as well. And his book really captures what it does to people when, you know, you are an organised force together and you achieve something that you shouldn't even have to do. That, that idea that fascists are allowed to march through your neighbourhood, whipping up racism, you know, as you say on the back of police racism, is an absolute disgrace. I was a teacher in the late 90s in Lewisham, and I remember asking my first ever tutor group of 11 and 12-year-olds who had been stopped by the police Eight of the boys in the class, all of whom were from African-Caribbean backgrounds, had been stopped more than once by the age of 12. One boy had been stopped eight times by the police by the age of 12. That kind of things that we still see taking place today in Australia, in Britain, America, elsewhere around the world, the racist policing that is integral to the states in which we live was, was really, the, you know, shaped the lives of young black people in Lewisham. At, at the time and for them to get that victory against the nazis but also that the police could not protect the nazis that day was massively important so yeah i mean they had this incredible victory and i think as with now um the situation where you protest you win you push back the cops people then say okay now what do we do um how do we organize what do we want to do next do we just think that that's it, hope that they go away? Do we um, try to lobby politicians to kind of reform the police or whatever it is? And so this was the question immediately after Lewisham and where we get to the formation of the Anti-Nazi League. So sort of how did that happen? Can you talk a bit about that? And then what, what the ANL was kind of set up to do? Yeah, I mean, I think if people want to read more about this, you, you know, it's uh, useful to look up Paul Hobra, who was a, a national organiser for the Socialist Workers' Party, a revolutionary socialist organisation in Britain at the time, and he writes a lot about how the Anti-Nazi League was formed. And he talks about in the days after the demonstration on Saturday, the phone ringing saying, I don't, I'm not a revolutionary socialist, I don't necessarily agree with your politics, but I do want to stop the fascists the way that people did in Lewisham on Saturday. And, they, you know, and, and revolutionaries took the initiative to form the Anti-Nazi League, which was a broader organisation with one aim of stopping the Nazis. And that was really crucial to involve broader forces on the left who, you, who they didn't necessarily agree with, didn't agree with about lots of other questions, about how the question of how we could achieve socialism, or even on all questions of racism, actually. But many people in the Labour Party were convinced to come on board. Ten national trade unions supported the Anti-Nazi League, 50 Labour MPs. Some of the uh, organisations are mentioned earlier, a lot of black and Asian organisations. The Indian Workers Association, for example, were a very important organisation in it. A lot of academics, footballers. Uh, Roz will be pleased that Terry Venables, who was the manager yes. of Sun Hotspur at the time, <laughs> he, he was a player at the time, wasn't he, Venables, for Spurs? Or was he the manager? 
No, I think he was a player. Because then you had um, Spurs against the Nazis as well, the football supporters group. Yeah. was the first football team to have a Nazi-Nazi <laughs> group. Thank you. <laughs> and it, they all came together to form this organisation based on the principles of stopping the Nazis. And, and you know, and revolutionaries within that argued that the, it was very important that whenever the Nazis tried to mobilise on the street, that people had to get out and oppose them in big as numbers as possible. It was the idea that you had to let you had to send the little worms back to the holes that they came from. They were no longer going to be part of a dragon, and that's the way that you could break up the Nazis and and their supporters. Yeah, and the, even the the um, name, the Anti-Nazi League, was basically a, a, an important decision to say well this is what we're for and that this is how we want to work that we're we're for getting rid of the nazis in britain yeah i mean yeah yeah a very important thing that people like tyndall did was you know the 70s weren't that far removed from the second world war and for many people their their idea of the second world war was that they were fighting against the nazis and so there was this kind of public face of the National Front, which was all respectable and suited and booted, and the kind of, the thugs were kept in the background, and people like Tyndall tried very hard, not for photos of him, you know, this is before the internet, you know, you had to go and cut and photograph out of a newspaper, uh, tried very hard to hide the fact that they were fascists, and calling it the Anti-Nazi League was very important and producing propaganda that linked the National Front to the Nazis. You know, the most famous slogan being, the National Front is a Nazi front. And with, produce, with posters saying never again, and pictures of the Holocaust, and making it absolutely clear to people what the Nazis stood for and what they were about. And that was a very successful campaign. In three to four years, there was over nine million leaflets produced, there was magazines, there was fact sheets, they were exposing the Nazis. It was countering those simplistic arguments of one million unemployed, one million immigrants, arguing for black and white unity, arguing for the strategy of mobilising on the streets. And it was also about broad participation. So there was hundreds of local groups set up in, in both, you know, kind of locations, anti-Nazi league groups, and also in things like workplaces. There was gays against the Nazis, badges, posters against the Nazis, teachers against the Nazis, school kids against the Nazis. On YouTube, there's a beautiful little 15-minute video from Thames Television showing school kids against the Nazis, organising against the racists in their area, organising in their schools in Hackney, and doing a great little march on Hackney Downs. It's a beautiful little video with these articulate young people expressing that they wanted a multiracial Britain. They wanted a multicultural Britain and they were not going to be divided. The way of the revolution Yeah, it's an amazing video. People should watch it handing out leaflets, having a debate about, you know, are they Nazis? What should we do with the racists? Um, really, really articulate. And that's part of what the Anti-Nazi League did was to kind of force this conversation to become like a kind of 
a national conversation with as many working class people as possible. And it was not aimed at convincing ruling class figures to be anti-racist. It was about saying, well, actually, working class people are against the Nazis and we're going to organise and be visible about it. And the, the amount of leaflets and stuff and the badges and everything was about, you know, forcing the minority um, of people that were interested in the National Front to, like, yeah, get back in their holes, like, um, to feel afraid to be Nazis, which they should be, you know. Um, and then there was the cultural stuff. There was also there's some brilliant photos and images and the huge uh, event that happened in 1978 that people might have heard about the Rock Against Racism carnival that took place. It was just this massive event um, where people, you know, some of the performers like The Clash particularly um, will be still known to people. Um, and that was part of like, you know, a, th a debate in popular music like there is now around being openly anti-racist and there are elements of people in music who are racist. One of them um, was Eric Clapton. Uh, we won't forget about that. Uh, even David Bowie at that point was a bit, was pretty dubious um, around <laughs> racism. So this massive festival gig basically was organised and I think nobody expected to be as massive as it was. And it involved this really long march. I remember reading about that, you know, that they were like, let's just march from Trafalgar Square down to Victoria Park in East London. And it's like, that's a seven mile march. That's about what, 12, 13 kilometers or something march. <laughs> People were like, this is crazy. And they did it. And then it turned into tens of thousands of people. Then they get to Victoria Park and there ends up 100,000 people in there just at this massive anti-racist gig, which was a part of that same, you know, people try to sort of separate, well, there was the cultural bit of Rock Against Racism and then there was the political anti-Nazi league. But actually, when you read about it a bit more, it's quite clear that those things really were went hand in hand. Yeah. I, th I think the beautiful thing about the whole thing, and I'll talk a bit about Rock Against Racism in a minute, but the whole thing was that 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 we can shape ideas in society through mass movements, that we can fight against the dominant filth that we see coming out of the media. You know, just today, there was an article in the Daily Telegraph here in Australia that uses uses the word Negroes and attacks black people in America and Australia for standing up for their rights. And sometimes you can feel despair, can't you? You can hear Scott Morrison denying the existence of slavery and you can feel, God, things are never going to change. And actually, for me, one of the things about the Anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism is it changed the narrative about race in Britain. It changed the arguments. It actually fought back against the establishment and the police treatment of black and Asian people in, in Britain. And it shaped a whole generation of people and those again you know the photographs are just incredible of seeing these black and white young people united in this massive carnival in victoria park and a year or two later in leeds and manchester in the northern cities that had equally massive carnivals and it was the conscious bringing together of you know the white music of the time punk with the black music of the time reggae 
into this mass movement to actually forge a different view of what Britain could be like. That Britain didn't, you know, Britain wasn't just the terrible history of empire, but it was also the history of black and white unity that could be forged in, in the struggles that people took part in. And, you know, I think those carnivals massively shaped the people involved in them and the hundreds of thousands of young people who took part in them. Mm. There's some great stories of young people who kind of snuck out, not telling their parents where they were going. Like young, young, a young Asian woman who wrote about it um, on the anniversary of the Rock Against Racism carnival and describing how, you know, she hadn't really realised basically how many people, because her experiences of racism were so everyday in growing up in London, that when she got to Victoria Park, she just wasn't expecting it to be very big and then suddenly surrounded by 100,000 people all there to be active against racism was just like, whoa, you know, as you say, like the reality of that struggle and that coming together on a mass scale just can make people think about the world in a different way and it, and that you can't just get that from reading a book or, um, you know, now reading the right blog on the internet or whatever um, to change your perspective. So let's end with the stuff about the legacy and the lessons and I guess we've said some of it, but um, it really has had a longer-term impact in Britain and in, and in British politics, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean... Uh, obviously, right across Europe, you've had the growth of the far right. And in Britain, that's also been the case. But it's been a much more kind of faltering stop-start for the far right in Britain. And that is partly the legacy of the Anti-Nazi League and the argument that you can have mass mobilisations to stop them. And that's a legacy which never really went away. There was a court case in 1982 involving Martin Webster, who was one of the leading Nazis of the time. And the National Front were in tatters by 1982 because of the anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism. And in the court case, that's what he said, that actually we were driven off the streets, that the anti-racist movement became much more powerful and much strong, much stronger than we were able to build. And obviously, you know, in, in a society that is built on racism, capitalist society, you know, those, those victories are temporary. You know, we do see the far right on the streets of Britain again, but it, it isn't the size of the far right in France or Italy or Hungary or elsewhere. And that is partly the legacy of the Anti-Nazi League and also the legacy of, of that's how you build to fight back. So in the early 90s, when I was very active in, in, in Britain in socialist politics, you know, when, the, when there was racist murders in South London, for example, you could re, you know, the Anti-Nazi League was reformed and could get a demonstration of 60,000 people on the streets in 1993 to shut down the British National Party, as the Nazis called themselves then, to shut down their headquarters, which was like this organising space in the area where the racist murders were taking place. I think one of the most beautiful uh, tributes to the Anti-Nazi League came from Darkus Howe, and he was a leading African-Caribbean campaigner in Britain for over 40 years, going back to the 60s. He was one of the people involved in setting up the Notting Hill Carnival, for, for example. And there's a beautiful photograph of him in 1977 
uh, on a megaphone leading hundreds of local black youth into battle against the police lines in Lewisham. And at a memorial meeting when David Widgery died in the 1990s, who was, you know, the central figure in the ANL, he described how he'd fathered five children in Britain. And he said that the fifth one had had a very different experience to that of her siblings, who had constantly had to battle the racism around them. And Darkest House said in this, in this uh, speech at, at Widgery's funeral that because of Widgery and the ANL, she had grown up black at ease with space to develop her personality. And I think that's a beautiful tribute to the way that mass movements can fight against racism and can shape the world in a different way. Well, that I think is a beautiful way to finish. Um, Moira, thank you so much for coming back and being a friend of Red Flag Radio. <laughs> thank you, Liam. Thank you, Ross. And a very dear friend of mine. And thank you, Liam. Um, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. And of course, we have a world to win. The carnival is the sort of start of everything because it generated interest in the anti-Nazi league because it showed that it weren't all boring meetings, you know, sitting around talking about things. Now you actually sort of got up and did things. You know, the kids just didn't believe that so many kids could turn out against the National Front. You know, it really showed what people think. Because, I mean, a lot of people were scared of going in case the National Front would be there. But it just showed that, you know, if 80,000 people can turn up and there's still a lot that are scared, and it was at least 80,000 who wished they'd gone when they got back to school and heard about it, you know. Just shows how much feeling there is against the National Front. After the carnival, we started up scan. Scan is school kids against the Nazis. We're opposed to the idea of the National Front and it, and we want to sort of stop it at the beginning at schools and it. Come and join the discussion about what we can do to fight the Nazi National Front in schools. See you there. We are black, we are white, we are dynamite. School kids against the Nazis can. We're sick of what's going on in school, you know, all the racism and all this. Because most fights which happen in school are caused by racism, right? It's not just by um, jealousy or hate or, or something which crops up between them. It's mostly racism. And you mostly find all the fights going between, between two different races. And the headmistress constantly keeps on saying that, you know, let's be one big happy family. When it, and it's really depressing, it is. I don't think a lot of them bit is that because they're haters or anything. But when they're unemployed, they decide to blame it on us. I just think the National Front wants someone to pick blame someone to pick for what's happening to the country at the moment. They don't just want someone to hold the can for them. Teaching their school, they, they don't talk about the National Front, they think it's, it's going to go away if you don't talk about it. And, you know, it's, it's silly because it won't go away, because it's going to be there, it's going to grow, isn't it? If you don't talk about it. We are meeting on Hackney Downs, opposite Hackney Downs School. Everyone thinks that in the East End it's all National Front, but it's not. The majority of people are against them, yeah. The more there is of us, and each time we increase, then we could drive these National Fronts off. Because what they do is not, it just isn't right, you know? They ain't got the right to, you know, throw people out of the country or nothing like that. Right. Well, you got to fight it somewhere. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because we get on with the white guys and they get on with us. Black and white, Indian, West Indian, African school students, with, together with the white school students, that's the way we're going to get rid of racism, by showing that we can work together and we can have fun while we work together.